Today's reading is Colossians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always give thanks. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Jesus, in Christ Jesus, and the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might have preeminence. For in him all faithfulness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above, and above reproach before him. Indeed, if you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, 
but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we Father, we're grateful to you for the ability to gather freely and to worship you. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning. Father, I pray that as we look into your word, that you would show us things in there that would delight our heart. And I pray that our hearts would be good soil and receive your word and spring to life and bear much fruit in our lives. Father, we want to see your word transform our hearts and our lives and our marriages and our families and our neighborhoods. So, Father, I ask that you would do that work by your spirit through your word this morning. And, Father, we pray the same for our brothers and sisters at the Branch Church. And Pastor Doug, Father, we pray that this morning the gospel, the unadulterated gospel would go forth from that pulpit and that it would be preached with clarity and with power and, Father, that the hearts of the hearers would be changed. Father, bring spiritual renewal to your people. Father, this morning I ask that you would give me clarity. Father, give me boldness, still my troubled soul. And Father, keep me, please, Lord, from error. And Father, may we do all that we do this morning for your glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Last week, I stumbled onto a bizarre fairy tale written in the 17th century. I'm sure there are some of you here that are very familiar with these fairy tales, and this might not take you by surprise, but I thought it was so weird that I couldn't help but want to share it with you this morning. The title of at least the English translation is The Ridiculous Wishes. And if you haven't read this to your children, don't. Trust me, they, they are missing nothing by not hearing this. Here, here's the gist of this story. Long ago, there was a... Well, I started it that way. I'm going to summarize it, but I started that way because that's the way fairy tales begin, right? Long ago, there was a poor woodcutter named Henry, and he was at work one day complaining about his lot in life and how other people always seemed to get what they wanted. Jupiter appeared to him then and granted him three wishes. Well, Henry ran home to his cottage and told his wife, Fanny, what had happened. Wisely, and, and just so you know, I'm not setting up a joke here. This is, this is for real. This is an English translation of a French fairy tale. Henry ran home to his cottage and he told his wife, Fanny, what had happened. And wisely, the couple decided to wait until the morning before making their wishes. To celebrate their fortune, though, 
Henry asked Fanny to break out a bottle of their best. He leaned back in his chair with his toes to the fire and his goblet in his hand, and he said something like this, something you can picture most men saying. What fine glowing embers. What a fine toasting fire. I wish I had some sausage at hand. Hardly had he spoken the words when his wife beheld to her great astonishment a long black sausage winding and wiggling toward her. When Fanny realized what her husband had done, she started berating him and calling him a witless fool. Well, Henry didn't take too kindly to her abuse, and thus he uttered those fateful words. Enough, woman, a plague on the shrew and on her sausage. Would to heaven it hung at the end of her nose. Of course, Henry's wish was immediately granted, and the coil of sausage appeared grafted to his angry wife's nose. The the dilemma then was how to use their third and final wish. Henry was about to wish for a kingdom for himself. Then it dawned on him that if he was a great king, what of the queen? With what grace, said Henry, would she sit beside me on the throne with a yard of sausage for a nose? So he let Fanny decide the matter. And after some consideration, she said she'd rather remain a peasant with a shapely nose than be a queen with an ugly face. And thus our woodcutter did not change his state. He did not become a king, nor did his purse fill with golden crowns. He used his remaining wish to a more humble purpose and forthwith relieved his wife of her encumbrance. And I suppose the moral of the story at least from what I gather, is be careful what you wish for. We won't take that illustration too far this morning, but think for a minute about what you wish for. What do you want? What do you desire? And let me ask you a rather silly question about that. What if you were granted not three wishes, but one? And it had to be for another person. What would you wish for them? Make it good. You only get one. What would you want for that other person? Now think about community group. When your group leader asks, well, how can we pray for one another this week? What are the requests? We pray that the test results come back negative. We pray for healing, if it is cancer. We pray for a new job. We pray for a husband or for our car that's on its last leg. Isn't that what we pray for? Don't get me wrong. Those are good things, and our Heavenly Father cares about those things because He cares about us, His children. So don't stop praying about them. But what if you could only make one request on behalf of another person? What would that request be? Well, I think your answer to that question gives you a clue to what you truly value and what you believe the other person truly needs. As I meditated on this morning's passage, I was struck by the fact that this prayer report in verses 9 through 14 contain only one. One request of God. 
on behalf of the Colossians. Paul and Timothy weren't limited to one. They could have asked God for many things, and we know that they did, but they reported only one. And I think that if it was significant enough for them to tell the Colossians about it and for the Holy Spirit to preserve it for the past 2,000 years, then we should pay attention. And that's what we're going to do this morning. First, though, let's recap. We're moving slowly, covering only a verse or two each Sunday, so it's easy to miss the forest for the trees. Here's where we've been. Epaphras, Paul's faithful fellow slave, was from the city of Colossae. He was probably converted during Paul's two or three year ministry in the city of Ephesus, Ephesus being about 100 miles west of Colossae. He returned to his hometown at some point and planted churches in three cities, Colossae, Hierapolis, and Laodicea. These cities were all situated within a few miles each other, of each other in the Lycus Valley in modern-day Turkey. In about A.D. 60, Epaphras visited the Apostle Paul. Paul was in prison at the time, and it was probably in Rome. Timothy was with him. Epaphras told them about the faith and the love of the new believers in his hometown. And he also gave them some alarming news about some false teacher, teachers that were trying to influence the new flock. That report from Epaphras seems to be what prompted Paul and Timothy to write this letter. Their overarching theme was the all-satisfying, all-sufficiency supremacy of Jesus. And Paul and Timothy wanted to drive that message home to the Colossians because of what Epaphras reported about this false teaching. And that connection will become crystal clear to us as we work our way through this letter. They began the letter with a traditional greeting and then launched into a prayer of thanks. They thanked God for the newfound faith of the Colossians, for their love for the saints that flowed from their faith. And they thanked God for the ground of it all, the glorious hope that was secure for them laid up in heaven. And they followed that prayer of thanksgiving in verses 3 through 8 with a prayer of petition in verses 9 through 14. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. This petition is six verses long, and in the ESV takes about 131 words. And yet, as I mentioned, it contains only one request. At first read, though, it feels a little dense, and so let's break it down. Verses 9 through 14. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking... Now, here's Paul and Timothy's one request, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. And then there's the qualifying phrase, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Verse 10, so as, there's the conjunction. Kids, you can explain what a conjunction is to your parents after the service. This is the connector between the petition and the purpose for the petition. This is the reason that Paul and Timothy regularly ask God to fill these believers so as. 
so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Then they sketch out the kind of life that fully pleases God. Think of what follows as four marks of the believer's life. And depending on your translation, you can recognize these four marks by their ing endings. They're participles. Again, kids, you can explain this to your parents at home. The, look for the ing endings. Here are the marks. A life that is fully pleasing to God is a life that's bearing good fruit in every good work. Two, it is a life that's increasing in the knowledge of God. Three, it is a life that's being strengthened by God. And four, it's a life that's giving thanks to God. So it might feel a little dense at first, but when you break it down, it's really quite simple. We have one petition, one purpose, and four participles. This morning, we're just going to work through the petition in verse 9. And next week, we'll talk about the purpose and the four marks of the life of the believer. Before we wade into this petition, though, let me make three higher altitude observations about this prayer. Here's the question I have in mind. What would Paul and Timothy's readers have learned from this prayer report? That's what this is. It's a prayer report. They're reporting to the Colossians what they regularly ask God for on their behalf. Three things I think the Colossians would have learned from it, and I think we can learn from it as well. First, they would have learned that Paul and Timothy loved them. Verse 9, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Every day since Epaphras told us about your genuine faith in Christ, we dropped to our knees and we started praying for you. And we haven't stopped. Because just like you, the gospel radically transformed our hearts. We too have a love now for the saints that flows from our faith in Christ. So it only makes sense then for us to show our love for you by praying for what you need most. And everybody in the room knows what it's like to get one of those prayer reports. I've been praying for you. I know you're struggling. I heard you were sick. I know you're feeling down this week. I'm praying for you. You see, in prayer, we have access to the king. And one of the most loving things we can do for our fellow peasants is to bring our needs to the throne of the one who has the authority and the power and the resources of the kingdom at his fingertips. How unloving of us if we don't. Let us, brothers and sisters, never cease praying for one another. So the Colossians would have heard this prayer report and they would have known that Paul and Timothy loved them. Number two, they would have learned that Paul and Timothy were singularly focused on their spiritual needs, not their physical ones. At least what they reported 
was that they prayed for the Colossians to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Not for their stomachs to be filled with bread and wine or for their crops to abound. For what will it profit a man, man, Jesus said, if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What does it matter if your house closes before the interest rates rise? What does it matter if you're healed from your chronic pain? And what does it matter if your investments keep growing, if you forfeit your soul? Again, I'm not preaching against bringing all your requests to your loving Heavenly Father. I'm just saying that we must keep the main thing, the main thing. And the main thing is always spiritual because the spiritual lasts forever. And the physical lasts 70 or even by reason of strength, 80 years And it's usually full of toil and trouble, and it's soon gone, and then we fly away. That's Psalm chapter 90. Number three, in this prayer report, the Colossians learned that Paul and Timothy's worldview was thoroughly God-centered. They say they saw God and his will as ultimate, not the Colossians. Remember the purpose of the petition in verse 10. They asked God to fill the Colossians with the knowledge of his will so that God might be fully pleased with lives lived in a manner worthy of him. The specific prayer issue, the specific spiritual need was for them to be filled. The purpose, the underlying thrust of the request was centered upon God. This was mainly about what pleased God, not the Colossians. Oh, what a model of prayer we have here for our own prayers for one another. Brothers and sisters, may our faith, our trusting in the truths of the gospel overflow in love for one another. And in love, let us bring the needs of our fellow believers before the throne of grace. And may we never limit our prayers to that which is fleeting and physical. But let's pray for the deep spiritual needs of one another. And let's keep the worthiness of our God at the center of what we ask of him. What a model of prayer. Well, that's the overview. Now let's take a closer look at the petition itself in verse 9. To understand this petition, we need to ask a few questions of the text. What does it mean to be filled? What is the will of God and how is it being used in this verse? What is knowledge? And then what's the connection between the knowledge of God's will and spiritual wisdom and understanding? First, what does it mean to be filled? The prayer was that God would fill the Colossians with something But what does that mean? I'll tell you that defining the word fill was a frustrating endeavor. Almost every definition in even the best Greek dictionaries use the word fill, full, or filled to describe what it means to be filled. (laughs) And kids, again, you can explain to your parents why it's not okay to do that in a definition. The Oxford English Dictionary helped a little. 
It defined filled using words like stuffed, satisfied, saturated, supplied with as much as can be held or contained. That tells us something, but I really think that John MacArthur gets this definition right. He includes in it the idea of being under control, under the control of, or under the influence of what you're stuffed with. Now, he doesn't use the word stuffed. I just added that. So in addition to simply being filled with something, that something has a controlling influence over the thing or person filled. He often uses the analogy of a glove. A glove is filled by a hand and therefore under the control or influence of the hand. Another example might be someone that we say is filled with wine. The wine fills the person and exerts a degree of control or influence over the person filled. Well, if that's an accurate definition, then to be filled with the knowledge of God's will is to be stuffed, satisfied, completely sought, uh, supplied with, and therefore under the control of the will of God. And that brings us directly to the point in this sermon series where we need to begin to introduce the false teaching that was beginning to influence this group of new believers. This false teaching is sometimes called the Colossian heresy. It's not clearly defined in the letter, and it's unlike heresies that we find elsewhere in the early church. The teaching appears to borrow from the surrounding Greek and Roman religions, and it seems to add some of those elements or practices to the truth of the gospel. And Josh and I are, are working off of a list of about eight different aspects of this Colossian heresy. And I'm not going to list all of them now, just for the sake of time. But let me, let me give you two of them that are relevant to this morning's passage. First, this false teaching offered a false fullness of life. At least one Bible commentator believes that fullness of life may have been a slogan of some kind for these false teachers. Well, Paul and Timothy counter the idea multiple times throughout this letter. The teachers claimed a fullness for their followers that denied the all-sufficient and supreme fullness of Christ and the believer's fullness in Christ. That's why you see that word repeated so many times in this letter. Second, the false teaching claimed a deeper knowledge of God and a greater experience of His power. This, too, was a direct denial of the all-sufficiency of Christ in the gospel and in His supremacy as the all-powerful creator and sustainer of the universe. So to counter the kind of feeling and the so-called deeper knowledge and experience that these teachers were advocating, Paul and Timothy asked God that the Colossians would be filled with and under the control of the true knowledge of God and His will. What then is knowledge? Well, the word here for knowledge is not 
merely an intellectual understanding or simply knowing the facts. This knowledge, and I'm going to use a word that we rarely use these days, this knowledge is experiential. Experiential is a knowing that involves or is derived from experience. It is relational. And this is exactly the way Jesus used the word knowing in Matthew chapter 7. Look at this verse. On that day, many will say to me, you know this passage, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Clearly, Jesus will know who these people are. What he's saying, though, is that he never knew them experientially. He never had a relationship with them. Listen to Paul. But if anyone loves God, there's the experiential and the relational aspect of knowledge. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. That's 1 Corinthians 8. You see, historians study people from history. But for all the facts they glean about these people, they do not know them experientially. They know about them. If they had been married to them for a while, then they might begin to know them in this sense. The 20th century Greek scholar Kenneth Wiest created a really interesting translation of the New Testament. He intentionally used as many words as necessary to convey the meaning of the Greek text, which means that it's a little awkward and sometimes repetitive, so I don't recommend it for your daily Bible reading plan. But here's his translation of verse 9. Listen for his definition of knowledge. Because of this, we also, from the day we heard, do not cease on behalf of you, offering our petitions and presenting our definite requests. You can see how awkward it is. Here's the petition. That you might be filled with the advanced and perfect experiential knowledge of his will. That's how Paul and Timothy are using the word here. It is experiential and it is relational. So then what is the will of God? We have filling, we have knowledge. Now what is the will of God? If you remember, we learned about the will of God last year when we walked the Lord's Prayer together and learned what it meant to pray for the Father's will to be done. We made some helpful distinctions, and one of them was the distinction between the will of God's decree and the will of God's command. His will of decree includes all that he ordains or decrees to take place. God's will of command, on the other hand, are all the things he orders to be done. The thou shalts and the thou shalt nots are usually the first commands that come to our mind. God's will of command are his precepts, his statutes, and his commandments. That's what's meant by the will of God in this verse. It is the will of God's command. But here's the thing. 
because the knowledge of God's will involves that which is experiential and relational, we can't simply generate a list of imperatives or commands in the New Testament and present them to you as the will of God. Not exactly. Be angry. Don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Let the thief no longer steal. Let him labor. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Nothing wrong with the list. It's biblical, and they're all included under the umbrella of God's will of command. But the definition of will is broader than a static list of specific commandments, even though it includes them. The word will means that which is willed, wished, or desired. We want to be careful, though, using the word wish in reference to a sovereign God. So it would be accurate to say that we are to be filled with the knowledge of what God wills, what he desires of us. Another way of saying it is that we are to know the heart of God. So I switched up the language there because what's in God's heart is his will. Take a look at this verse. It connects both concepts. These are the words of the prophet Samuel to King Saul after he offered that unlawful sacrifice. 1 Samuel 13, you have done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord has commanded you. You see, the man after God's own heart is the man, at a minimum, that does what Saul failed to do, namely to obey God's commands or what God willed in the sense in which we're speaking. We see the same idea in 1 Samuel chapter 2. God, through an unnamed prophet, tells Eli that his family will be judged. And here's what he says, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And there's the connection again between what God wills, his will of command that must be obeyed, and what is in his heart. Of course, speaking of God's heart is a human analogy, but it is helpful it's helpful, especially in understanding the more general commands in Scripture. Specific commands are straightforward. Do not murder. Do not lie. The general commands are a bit more tricky. And here's a combination of both in a single verse. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. For this is the will of God, your sanctification... It's that general. It's broad. But it tells us something of the heart of our God. And then Paul lists specific commands. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, and the list continues. What is the heart of God for his people? That they be sanctified 
that they make progress in their holiness. What is his specific will of command in this verse? To abstain from sexual immorality. So what is the will of God? The will of God is the heart of God expressed in the general and specific commands in his word. So Paul and Timothy's prayer is that the Colossians would be filled with and controlled by the true experiential knowledge of God's will of command. Another way of saying it is this. They prayed that the Colossians would know the heart of God by relationship and that their lives, as we'll see next week, would be aligned with his heart, or if you prefer, with what God wills. That's Paul and Timothy's single petition. The one thing they recorded in their prayer report to the Colossians. Now let's connect the last phrase of verse 9 so we can get a full handle on this petition. They were asking that the Colossians may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. This knowledge is not only true and experiential, it is also knowledge in all wisdom and understanding. Wisdom is the application of this true and experiential knowledge. It is the application of the knowledge of God's will in the life of the believer. Knowledge versus wisdom. A smart man understands that snakes bite. That's knowledge, mere knowledge. The wise man doesn't put his hand in their den. That's wisdom, knowledge applied. Understanding then has a narrower definition than wisdom. It means to comprehend, to grasp, to try to, to wrap your head around an idea or a truth. And in this case, it is the understanding of God, his heart, his will, and his ways. Wisdom then is the application of what is grasped or understood of God's will. Again, the experiential nature of this kind of knowledge is unmistakable. Notice, though, that this wisdom and understanding being described here is spiritual. What does that mean? It is a spiritual wisdom. It is a spiritual understanding. Well, this refers directly back to the Holy Spirit mentioned at the end of verse 8, which, by the way, is the only time in this letter that the Holy Spirit is specified. It refers directly to the Holy Spirit mentioned at the end of verse 8. Spiritual, then, means that this understanding and this wisdom is animated, made alive by the Spirit, that it comes from the Spirit or that it is given or imparted by the Holy Spirit. The British biblical scholar F.F. F. Bruce put this petition all together and he put it like this. Paul and Timothy's prayer for the Colossians is that they may gain full knowledge of God's will through the insight that the Spirit imparts and thus, this is the purpose we'll talk about next week, and thus 
be able to please him in everything and live in a way that benefits his children. Here are my closing exhortations. If we understand anything about what that one petition is, here are my closing exhortations. Brothers and sisters, own this prayer. Pray it for yourself. Pray earnestly. Pray without ceasing to use the language of our text. Pray for the things that matter most, your spiritual needs, not only your physical ones. Pray for the well-being of your soul. You're not limited to one petition, but never neglect the main thing. Ask God to so saturate you, to fill you with the true and experiential knowledge of his will through wisdom and understanding that the Holy Spirit imparts, and I'll say imparts through his word so that you're under the control of what God wills. Two, let's pray this prayer for one another. Pray earnestly that God would fill your brothers and sisters with the knowledge of his will. Who knows what God might choose to do with a people in this city who are filled and controlled by what he wills. And finally, let me say that I am fully aware that this sermon assumed the gospel. It assumed saving grace in your life. It is the gospel that gives us access to the throne of grace so that we can make bold requests like what we learned about this morning. It is the gospel that transforms the human heart and gives it the capacity to be filled and thus controlled by the will of God. See, apart from the gospel, it is impossible to do the will of God and it is impossible to live a life as described in these verses that pleases him. So if I was speaking a foreign language to you today, today about experiential and true knowledge and being filled by wisdom and understanding imparted by the Spirit, if all of that sounded like a foreign language to you, please come talk with me. If you don't know, if you don't experientially know the God we're talking about, if you don't relationally know this God we're talking about, please come talk with me or talk with one of the elders. We would love to introduce you to a relationship with him. It is our desire for you, for everyone here, that you be filled. Let me pray this prayer for you right now. Father, I ask that you would fill all of us here at Living Water Church with the knowledge of your will. Father, not merely the specific things that you command of us, but Father, we want to be filled with what you desire so that we can align our hearts with yours and that we can obey and fully please you with our life. Father, fill us with the knowledge of your will. 
and do it with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Father, we want to walk in a manner worthy of you. Father, we want to bear good fruit. We want to increase in the knowledge of you. We want to live this life by the strength that you provide. Father, we want to be men and women who are thankful. So, Father, we know that this prayer honors you. We know that you recorded it and preserved it for a purpose. And so, we want to pray it. So, Father, I pray that you would fill us today. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Let's stand together. It's a song that I have loved for many years.